Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. But what I really love doing is having geeky conversations with people about all kinds of things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. Ah, these are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. This week, we continue to explore the oddity of resurrection. You may remember last week when Dr. Nicholas Shazer started us down this path, talking about the presence of the idea of resurrection in the Hebrew Bible. We couldn't cover everything, so Dr. Shazer is back with me again to continue talking about his course called Resurrection in Jewish Text and Traditions. If you find this interesting, you may want to also go and listen in on one of IBC's Hot Topics seminars. It is called Jews and Greeks on the Underworld and the Afterlife. It's all kinds of wonderful and bizarre. As for now, I wanted to address the fact that Jesus raised several people from the dead when he was in the middle of his earthly ministry. So I asked Dr. Shazer what he thinks the original audience may have thought about those kinds of actions. Would they see Jesus's deeds as being like the prophets? For example, Elijah and Elisha, we talked about them last week and therefore firmly placed him in the Hebraic timeline. Or was Jesus pointing towards something else? Lean in and enjoy the conversation. So on the one hand, I think you're absolutely right, Cindy. A lot of Jesus's, uh, you know, mighty works, as it were. I, I'm hesitant to use the word miracle because that's a modern word that I think gets defined in several different ways. But whatever he's doing, he's doing mighty things through the power of God. And one of those mighty things is raising people from the dead. So one of them is Jairus's daughter in Mark chapter 5, where Jesus says in Aramaic, Tali takum, which means little girl, get up, and, and he raises her from the dead. So in that way, he is, he's recapitulating Elijah and Elisha raising young people from the dead as well. So there's a very specific reason Jesus is doing that, and that is to say, I'm in the line of Elijah and Elisha. I'm just like they were doing God's will and raising people, so too am I. Uh, but on the other hand, because we know the end of the story of the Gospels, or we should at least, we know that the centrality of Jesus' own resurrection. So in, in doing that um, in his life, raising people from the dead, he's also pointing to or foreshadowing his own resurrection. And then by proxy, the Gospel writers are saying, actually, Elijah and Elisha's work way back when was also foreshadowing Jesus's resurrection. That is, the gospel writers are trying their best to, and doing a very good job, uh, to, to show the reader how Judaic this Jesus phenomenon is and how Judaic his resurrection is. And so they're saying, look, just go back. Jesus is recapitulating the prophets. Go back and read those prophets, and you'll see how important resurrection has always been. And that Jesus, being a good Jewish boy, and, and the Jewish Messiah, in their view, is, um, is rightly recapitulating that history in his own life and resurrection. 
I have a slightly more complex question about the death and resurrection of Jesus. There are two concepts that are put together. These are atonement and resurrection, in which death is associated with sacrifices and thus atonement, and the afterlife is associated with resurrection. So do these topics actually go together? Is there a necessary element of resurrection to a proper atonement? Yeah, so just to base this in some scripture, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then uh, the the faith of the Corinthians is in vain. That is, um, it's, uh, it's not even worth doing this anymore if Jesus has not been bodily raised from the dead. So that's first. And then Paul says something really interesting, that if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, not only is your faith futile, but you are still in your sins, says Paul. So this goes to the question of atonement. Okay, so how I thought that the death of Jesus is what atones for sin and obliterates sin. So how is it that if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, we are still in our sins, according to Paul? Well, this gets into the question of what ancient Israelites understood sin to be and ancient Jews understood sin to be. And that is... By the first century, by Jesus's day, uh, sin had been metaphorized as a debt. So the idea is if you sin, you go into debt in heaven. God has like a heavenly ledger in which God is writing, you know, essentially your economic status, for lack of a better term, vis-a-vis your deeds or your sins. And this, this, you, you can see this clearly in Matthew, like in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to lay up treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. Well, Jesus doesn't mean that necessarily non-literally. Uh, the idea would be is that <laughs> giving, giving charity can pay down one's heavenly debt. And, uh, and, and inversely, the negative inverse of that is sinning puts you into debt before God. So there was this very economic language associated with sin uh, and forgiveness and atonement in the first century. So according to Paul and the other followers of Jesus, what Jesus does is his death obliterates the debt of sin. This is actually, what, just to go back to Mark 10.45 and Matthew 20.28, 20, when Jesus says he's going to give his life as a ransom for many, the Greek word for ransom is lutron, and it's the Greek calc for the Hebrew word kofir. You can hear the word kippur in that, K-P-R, like the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And so what is Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about a ransom payment to God. So Jesus's life is currency that pays down human, the human debt of sin. So why would, if that's true, and it is for Paul too, Paul says in Romans that the wages, hear that economic language? The wages of sin is death. So what Jesus does is save people from sin and death. And that's Paul's whole point, by the way, in the latter part of Romans. Not that Jesus saves people from the law, by the way. But for, so for Paul, the whole point of Jesus is to atone for our sins, which saves us from death, because sin causes death, according to Paul and every other ancient Jew uh, that there was. So if that's what Jesus' death does, it gets rid of the debt of sin, why is it that Paul says that if Jesus hasn't been raised, that you're still in your sins? Well, just to go back to economic language here, you know, like if you go into a store and you buy something, uh, and you get the item, and then you're given a receipt of payment to show you that you paid. Well, that is what Jesus' resurrection is in this economic analogy. So 
honestly, when Jesus goes into the ground, when he when Jesus dies, the debt of sin is paid. And then when Jesus is raised from the dead, when God raises Jesus from the dead, God gives a receipt of payment. The same body that went in the ground comes back up. It's the same receipt. So when Paul says you're, you're still in your sins without the resurrection, the point is, is that you'd have no way of knowing if Jesus's death were actually efficacious for the dismantling of sin. If Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, he's just another Jewish guy who dies at the hands of the Romans. And there were many, many, many at that time. What Paul is saying is that's the receipt of payment, that our sin has in fact been obliterated, been paid off, is that Jesus is raised from the dead. So we can be sure that, 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 uh, that Jesus' death was efficacious. Earlier in the year on this podcast, I was talking to Pinchas about his course on the book of Revelation. And Revelation is always tied back to the Hebrew Bible, and it just pulls on these Hebraic ideas and expounds on them. So is Revelation doing anything unique or different with the idea of resurrection? Because that seems to be a theme in the book that people hold on to. Do you touch on that theme in your course, the book of Revelation? I do. We talk about Revelation, and there is indeed something kind of special in Revelation vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the text of the New Testament. Uh, and that is that Revelation speaks of a, a really two resurrections. A first resurrection of martyrs, literally of those who have been beheaded for the gospel, Revelation says. This is Revelation chapter 20. Um, so there's a first resurrection in which martyrs will then be raised from the dead and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. This is often what's called the millennium. And, um, you know, how I often get asked how literally we should be taking that 1,000 number. I say probably best not so literally. Uh, as with as with all Hebrew numbers, the digit on the page is far less important than the symbolism and the meaning of the number. And, um, you know, I think of texts like Psalm 90, verse 4, that to God, a single day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a single day. So I, I don't think it's it's uh, an accident that it's a thousand years. But I don't think we should like be getting a calendar out or anything like that. Uh, what it means is a, a fullness of time in the eyes of God. And then after this, the first resurrection of the martyrs, we get a second resurrection of everyone. Uh, of uh, There is that universal resurrection that we get in the book of Daniel. Now, Revelation, the writer of Revelation is so familiar with Daniel, it's not even funny. So it is a kind of addition, this additional idea of a first special resurrection for those who've been martyred and then a secondary resurrection for of everyone. And, um, and then after that resurrection, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven onto a renewed earth. Uh, and then books are opened and it's judgment day. And the righteous go into the kingdom of God eternally and the wicked are left outside of the city. Uh, this again draws on imagery from Isaiah 66. That's the key chapter at the end of Revelation. If you just go back and read 65 and 66 of Isaiah, that's the foundation on which John, the, the writer of Revelation, is, is building this imagery. But also note, I, I, I want to point this out, that God's kingdom comes down from heaven in the end of days, in the last judgment. Humans who die don't go up to heaven. 
I understand that that might sound very, very strange, but there's a kind of um, popular view of death leading to immediate, uh, you know, entrance into heaven. That is, put a better way, when you die, you go to heaven. Um, it's just that that's not quite the picture that we get in Revelation. What we get is the writer of Revelation saying, I saw death and Hades. So that's our Greek word for Sheol, the realm of the dead, giving up their dead. And also out of the sea came up the dead that were in it. And everybody stood before God. So the dead come out of Sheol. This is going back to our resurrection language that we talked about all the way back with the Tanakh, Hannah, Hannah saying God brings down to Sheol and takes out. Well, Revelation is right on top of that and saying there's going to be a universal pulling out of Sheol. Then people are going to stand in, in judgment day before God bodily with resurrection bodies. But the, the reason I bring up the, the kind of misapprehension about heaven immediately after death is that it kind of undermines the central, uh, you know, motif of bodily resurrection in Christianity. That is, Jesus's bodily resurrection is so deeply important that physical flesh comes out of the ground. Uh, but if, if believers in Jesus go straight to heaven and get a halo and wings and are disembodied in, in the clouds with God, then what on earth is the point of bodily resurrection? You're already there. You've made it. You live, you're hanging out with God and everything's good. Why would God send you back into a body, pull you out of the grave in a different body and judge you again if you're already up in heaven and everything is good? So that is the, the heaven idea um, as a post-mortem immediate reality kind of undermines the whole thrust of Jewish tradition and text about resurrection. And, and so if you just go back and you read the end of Revelation, what you see is a very strong emphasis on that universal resurrection that we see all the way back in Daniel uh, and the idea that those who, who follow Jesus, according to the writer of Revelation, are here with God eternally on a new heaven and a new earth when the kingdom of God uh, comes down from heaven. So that's the view that, that Revelation gives. Yeah. And that's, of course, before the scientific view of what happens to our bones and our body as it decomposes and goes back to ashes and dust. Although uh, that is also a Hebraic concept. So there's a weird both and happening in which we recognize that the body decomposes. We're also looking forward to having hope of a bodily resurrection. Absolutely. Yeah. From the beginning of the Tanakh, the, the Bible knows that, you know, you are dust, you're made from dust and to dust you shall return. That's Genesis chapter three. Uh, and then that, that to dust you shall return motif shows up all over the Tanakh. So the ancient Israelites knew this too, that at one point, despite the fact that that ancient Jews are very concerned about the bones of a person, very concerned about the body and the burial of a person, which is great. They have a high respect for the body. In fact, uh, after, for lack of a, well, this might get a little graphic, but when a person would die, there would be a period in which the flesh would come off of the bones, and then that person's bones would be kind of reburied, a second burial in what's called an ossuary, a bone box. And, uh, and those bones were really important because to go back to Ezekiel 37, that metaphor of the analogy of the dry bones coming back together. So this idea of actual physical, fleshly, bodily resurrection is so important in Jewish thought. It's not some wispy, floaty, spiritual reality. I'm talking about real reanimation of the body. And, uh, but at the same time, ancient Jews knew that eventually everybody's going to dust uh, and, and that God can bring people from dust and reanimate their bodies 
that way. So I, I get a lot of questions, particularly uh, about um, cremation and the biblical view of cremation, for example. <laughs> and I just kind of say, look, you're just sort of speeding up a process that's already going to happen. And God, if, if, can, if God can make from dust, God can, you know, recreate from dust. And in fact, just to go back to Revelation, maybe this is a good place to end, but just to go back to Revelation, uh, when people come out of Hades, out of Sheol, out of the realm of the dead, and then are, are raised from the dead before God, there's that little addition that the Revelation makes that I also saw the sea give up people. And the, and the people who had died at sea or been thrown into sea came out of the sea. Well, I, I tell congregations all the time, I mean, anyone who dies at sea has been fish food for quite some time. And so if God can bring back that to resurrection, um, don't worry too much about God's ability to bring back a cremated body from resurrection. Yeah. This class we've been talking about is quite new in the IBC collection. So I wanted to ask one more final question of Dr. Shazer and just find out what kind of responses he's getting. What are the types of questions that students are asking as they're listening to this explanation of the trajectory of the idea of resurrection in a Jewish context? I think the main question that I'll get is something like, you know, they'll say, you know, I appreciate, you know, explicating all of this history of resurrection and, um, and it's good to know the background for understanding the Gospels. But doesn't all of this resurrection language and events of resurrection before Jesus, doesn't that kind of, I don't know, maybe undermine Jesus's uniqueness and the uniqueness of Jesus's own resurrection? And my response to this, you know, I understand, you know, um, believers in Jesus want Jesus to be unique or special in some way over against any others. And I think that in some ways that's true of Jesus, but there's a flip side to this coin. And so my response to the, to the question of like, don't, don't these resurrections undermine the uniqueness of Jesus's resurrection? I would just say, you know, you have to remember that, that Jesus's claim and the claim of his followers is that he is the Messiah of Israel. That is the Mashiach, the anointed one of God. And so for Jesus to rightly uh, make that attestation and be correct about it, Jesus would have to rerun the history of Israel. That is, in Jesus' own life, he wants to be hitting notes of the symphony of Israel's scriptures. And resurrection is a central note. And if Jesus were wholly unique, by the way, I think that that word is a little bit tricky as well, just kind of like miracle. Uh, people like to use the word unique quite a bit. And I would just say unique with respect to what? Uh, that is, nothing can be fully unique. Uh, it is unique in some ways and unique and not other in other ways. So that is, Jesus can't be fully unique. Jesus is Jewish and there are all sorts of other Jews with him in the first century. So he's not wholly unique, okay? Um, but, but the point is, is that what we want out of a Jewish Messiah is a person that is rerunning that history. And so without that history beneath Jesus and Jesus' work and death and resurrection, those events, those actions in Jesus' life actually have no meaning at all. They have no messianic meaning. So pretend that you were to take the anchor of the Tanakh out or the stool on which Jesus is standing and kick that out. 
then his death and resurrection is fine. It would be a wow moment. Oh my gosh, someone has died and been raised from the dead. Isn't that cool? But it wouldn't have any messianic meaning. It wouldn't have any messianic import without those prior instances of resurrection or the notion that a human being could die for the sake of atonement for the collective, as we see in Maccabees. Jesus could say that of himself, but if that that if that foundation hadn't been laid before Jesus, Jesus' whole life would be bereft of any meaning. So what we actually want is not wholesale uniqueness from Jesus. We want Jesus to be a part of that tradition and carrying that on. If Jesus were, were doing something wholly 180 from what we see in the Tanakh, Second Temple literature, and the rest of Jewish history, that would mean that he was not the Messiah of God. <laughs> so what we want actually is not wholesale uniqueness, but a kind of a kinship between what happens in Jesus' life and what we see in prior Jewish history. I don't know about you, but I feel after this conversation, I need to go read Hannah's prayer, and then of course, Mary's Magnificat, and then Isaiah 65 and 66. I probably should read Daniel again, and of course, Ezekiel 37, maybe even Paul and the book of Revelation, just to see how all these threads are connected. Earlier on, Nick was talking about the letter to the Romans. We did a few podcast episodes on that, so you can review that content. Or better yet, just sign up and spend time with Dr. Shazer in his course called Will All Israel Be Saved? I'll put a link in the episode notes of this show. And if you want to hear more details and talk more in depth about this course called Resurrection in Jewish Text and Tradition, a link for this will also be in the show notes of the episode. Thank you, Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding all of the good music that you hear. Thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. 